Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Canaday. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement, both locally and internationally. Hello, everyone. Today, we have the amazing honor of welcoming Senator Maggie Hassan to the Trapes and Global on Wheels podcast hour. She is the junior Democratic Senator of New Hampshire. Prior to being elected to the U.S. Senate, she was a state senator as well as the governor of that state. And uh, prior to that, she way prior to that, she was the uh, she graduated from Brown University with her Bachelor of Arts and a JD from Northeastern University. She is also the proud parent of a child with a disability. Her son Ben has cerebral palsy. So without further ado, we're gonna have a conversation with Senator Maggie Hassan. Hi guys. Hi, Senator Maggie Hassan. This is Ming Canada. Ming, it's really nice to see you. Hi, nice, nice to meet you as well. I can't see you, but nice to hear your voice. Welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I am so happy that you uh, agreed to come on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with you, and I'm excited that you have this show. It's a really important thing to be doing. Of course. So if you're ready, we're going to kick off with our first question. Sure. So I, I understand you were self-isolating in D.C. for a period of time earlier because of your son Ben's compromised respiratory system. And so I want to share with you a situation that was brought to my attention. And this individual asked me to ask you about it. So they said, what if somebody has a high level injury like your son who has no other family members and relies on a caregiver? And in the meantime, that individual who happens to have a severe disability contracts the COVID-19. What protocols are in place to allow caregivers to come in to provide services to that specific person with a severe disability? Well, thank you. And that's a really excellent question. And uh, to your earlier point, you're right. I was self-isolating because of the risk that the virus presents to our son, Ben, who lives at home with his dad and me in, in New Hampshire. And uh, one of the things we have tried to do during this pandemic is really focus on the importance of continuing home care and other supports for people with disabilities who may need them. That means, among other things, making sure that direct support professionals have the kind of personal protective equipment they need, are trained in the CDC guidelines around hygiene. It can be very difficult, obviously, to socially distance when you're uh, a direct care professional, and that's true for healthcare workers generally. So we've been focused on making sure they have equipment and training. As you may know, the latest proposal out of the House also provides for hazard pay for people who are on the front lines of this epidemic, and certainly healthcare professionals in the home setting, as well as direct care professionals would be included in that. The other thing that was very important to me and has been something I have wanted to help facilitate for a long time is that when somebody with a disability needs to be hospitalized, we want their direct care professional to be able to be in the hospital with them and get paid for being there. In the past, uh, once you 
somebody has gone into the hospital, uh, the direct care professional hasn't been paid, so doesn't come into the hospital. And as I think most of us know, for somebody who has complex disabilities of any kind, the absence of a family member or a direct care professional who understands them, knows their routines, knows the way they communicate, can be absolutely essential for their health as well as for their overall sense of well-being. So the CARES Act did say that direct care professionals can go to the hospital and be paid through the Medicaid system to help continue to take care of the person that they usually take care of at home. And uh, that's more important than ever now. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I know public transportation has also been a real hassle even before the pandemic, but now it is worse in that it is much, much more limiting, which I'm sure you know. What has been done to include more individuals with disabilities and the elderly in emergency preparation planning? Again, a really good question. Uh, that is something that I know a number of governors and states have worked on in collaboration with FEMA. Uh, how do you plan to make sure that somebody who might need special equipment or extra time, let's say, can be either evacuated or in the event like a pandemic where people are staying in, how do we make sure we get meals to people? And in some cases, for people who experience disabilities, those meals may need to be specially prepared or especially delivered too. So those are some of the things that we've really been working to do is increase the amount of delivery capacity we have for people who are now isolating at home. And then again, uh, working with the direct support community to make sure that those workers are protected and trained so that they understand how to minimize their own risks as well as the risk to the person they're caring for uh, in a home setting. But in terms of overall disaster and emergency preparedness, I think we still have considerable work to do. And are there plans for individuals with disabilities specifically to get more PPP masks and other protective gear so that they can safely go out in public for essential errands? I know some individuals with, with disabilities will not be able to go out if there is a resurgence, it will be too risky to go out, even as things gradually open. There are some individuals who are you know, similar to your son and in that they have a compromised respiratory system. For example, one individual shared with me that, quoting now, because of my lung situation as a result of my SCI, I can't go out safely. What are your thoughts on a nationwide enforcement of putting, putting on masks when going out? Well, I think, again, it continues to be really important that all Americans, everybody around the world understand that the social distancing measures and the personal hygiene measures that we are promoting so strongly right now are important to protect one's own health, but it is also really important for protecting people who are at higher risk. So the first part of your question, we know that we still need more personal protective equipment in this country. Uh, we know that there are facilities, whether it's long-term care facilities or situations where home care workers don't have enough personal protective equipment for themselves on the front lines, but also obviously for the people with disabilities they may be caring for. So we need to continue to push for a national strategy to produce much more personal protective equipment to make sure that the highest quality protective equipment is available to people who are at high risk, to your point, or to the questioner's point, so that they can go out 
not only to do essential errands, but to engage in the same kind of activities that um, the more typical population wants to engage in. You know, there's been a lot of talk, and I'm, I both appreciate it, but I am concerned by it, about uh, we should just reopen and everybody who's at, quote, high risk should just stay home. That raises a whole lot of other issues about the rights of people who might be at higher risk or have disabilities and their need to work, to go to school, and to engage in the kind of activities that we all want to be able to do. So we have a ways to go there, and I think it's really important, lastly, that we make it very clear to people the importance of wearing masks, especially if somebody reminds you to put on a mask or asks you to put on a mask because they're at high risk, I don't think the person with a disability should bear the burden of needing to do that. I haven't considered what a true national enforcement strategy would look like and what some of the unintended consequences of that might be, but I certainly appreciate the question and I think we need to do everything we can to build awareness here. Thank you so much for that very informative response. So the next set of questions is on your role in, as a pub, public servant in the different roles and in regards to disability. So how has your presence in public service, such as being a state senator or a, a governor of New Hampshire, and then later on you know, being elected in 2016 as a US senator, how has these roles further helped you inform your colleagues about disability issues, especially as a parent of some of a son with cerebral palsy. Well, thank you for the question. And you know, the the reason I got drawn into public life was really because I had become, as so many family members of people who experience disabilities do, I had become an advocate for our son. First, in school, we had a very a cooperative and supportive uh, school district, but still, you have to push, you have to uh, really advocate for your family member. And so that's eventually what drew me into public life. And I still remember as a new state senator realizing that New Hampshire's state law didn't really enforce disability discrimination laws the same way the federal statute did when it came to discrimination and employment and needing to really engage with my colleagues to help them understand why it was so important to enforce the reasonable accommodation uh, rules in state law as well as in federal law. And that was just an example of some of the ex perspectives and experiences I was able to share with colleagues eventually to change the law. I've continued to work to do that. Uh, as governor, I was really, really proud of the fact that New Hampshire became the first state in the country to repeal subminimum wages uh, for people with disabilities. Uh, something actually the business community really advocated for, and I was very glad to champion on their behalf because they began to realize that their employees who experienced disabilities uh, were contributing just as much as all their other employees were, and they didn't think a subminimum wage was fair. What I've tried to do since becoming a member of Congress is just stay focused on the way the laws we pass um, and the things we fund in Congress impact people with disabilities and their families and communities all across the country. So in addition to uh, really trying to raise the voices of people with disabilities as well as chronic and complex medical uh, conditions during the whole debate about whether to repeal the Affordable Care Act, I've also focused on a couple of other things. One is fully funding the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act or IDEA. 
your listeners, I think, will know that that law was passed back in 1975, but has never been funded at the level Congress initially intended, which is 40%. So I'll continue to push for that. Uh, I also um, am aware of the barriers, many of which are pretty bureaucratic, that exist for people with disabilities who are matriculating from high school to higher education. So um, I've proposed the RISE Act, which would uh, make that transition much more seamless and much more uh, similar to what people who don't experience disabilities uh, go through uh, when they're matriculating. So those are a couple of um, the things I've really worked on. Um, and then, you know, we've already talked about some of the things that uh, I've done that are particular in response to the pandemic. But one of the other areas that we're really exploring right now is um, how to get emergency funding to school districts to use to particularly address the needs of students with disabilities during this period of remote learning, because there are some real particular challenges with that and uh, school districts need extra resources. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for that very thorough response. So the next question is regarding how do you think, having been you know, in all those roles that we discussed in the last question, what kind of people do you think would thrive in today's political climate and still be successful at looking out for the little folks? And so I, I want you to, if, if possible, answer the, this question in regards to uh, people with disabilities looking to participate in politics. What does it take to stand up to temptations of lobbyists, special interests, and PAC money when people with disabilities are trying to participate more in politics and getting elected in different roles, either locally or nationally? Well, first of all, I, I always encourage people to get engaged in um, our political system in whatever way makes the most sense for you, whether it is supporting a candidate you love, running for office yourself uh, at local, state, or federal level. Uh, the more perspectives we have at the decision-making table, the better decisions we make. That is just really clear to me, not only as a member, uh, as a uh, product of my experience, but research shows it to be true as well. And we can't leave a whole segment of our population out of that political and decision-making process. It's really important that people from all perspectives, all experiences are in the mix here so that we get their full perspectives. You know, we've talked a little bit today about some of the things I've been working on and will continue to work on. And that comes from my direct experience and my capacity, I hope, to be able to share with other people in politics or in my community, what my life is like, what my family's life is like, and what my family uh, has in common with other families. So, you know, we talked a little bit about my being the mother of a young man with disabilities. What I really have focused on throughout my career is just uh, saying to people, I want the same thing for my children that you want for your children. And the desire to build a better future for our kids and ourselves is a universal human desire. It doesn't matter whether you experience a disability or have a family member who does. It doesn't matter if you've had lots and lots of advantages in life. It doesn't matter if uh, you come from a part of the country that doesn't have enough broadband or you come from a family uh, that struggles to make ends meet. Everybody wants to build that better future and have a shot at experiencing the best that our country 
uh, and our globe has to offer. And so if you can connect at that level and find practical solutions forward, I think there are plenty of opportunities for people to run for office and be successful or to work in an office uh, of a candidate or, or a public servant you respect. Um, at the end of the day, this is about sharing experiences and connecting those experiences to the, the realities that all of us live with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very beautifully said. Next follow-up question, which is make the case for how a person with disability could bring a valuable perspective to either just past positions you've held, the governorship position or the U.S. Senate position. Uh, I think there are a couple of things. One is the more varied your experience, the more open you are to new ideas about how to solve a particular problem. And I don't want to get too granular about it, but when you have raised a family, uh, my husband and I have two children, Ben we've talked about who has cerebral palsy, our daughter happens to not have any uh, disabilities. But when you've balanced the needs of different family members in the way my family has needed to, uh, you see the promise of inclusion. You also know some of the practical challenges in making it actually happen. Um, so I know that my son had a chance to go to publicly funded education in his community and learn and make friends just the way other kids do because of the work of champions and families like ours who went before us. Similarly, uh, when you have the experience of having to uh, overcome differences or challenges that a lot of other people haven't had to, it makes you creative, it makes you practical, it also helps you notice um, the people or the groups that haven't been included. And you kind of always have an eye out for that or an ear out for it. And I think it, it makes you much more effective. And I guess, lastly, uh, you have a real chance to help people think through um, how much we all improve, uh, how much our prospects get better, and we work together to include everyone. And there are truly practical examples of that. Um, one of the ones uh, I, I like to use a lot is uh, just the, what we have all seen um, as a product of you know, uh, sidewalk cutouts for wheelchairs. We did that and all of a sudden it was a lot easier for um, parents with new kids in strollers to get around their community and their neighborhood. We introduced special education uh, as a right into our education system way back now in 1975. And as a result, we have broadened the way we educate everybody and really learn to meet students where they are in new and different ways. So there's just a lot of creativity and practicality that comes with the experience of having had to address and manage a disability. And I would really encourage all of your listeners uh, to consider participating in the way that makes sense for you, uh, but participating to be sure in the political system. And I know you have to go vote. So thank you so much for participating and keep doing the good work that you've been doing. Prior to this interview, I did some research about you and you were saying, you know, a generation or two ago, your son would have been compelled to institutionalize him. Right. And having been a child who was in institutionalized because I'm adopted, 
I understand how true that is and how important it is this kind of work and the progress that we have made in the progress that still needs to be made. That's right. So thank well, you so much. Ning, that was just beautifully said too. Thank you. What a nice way to close. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. I only know what it's like in America And shutting doors, I don't think that's right Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy, worldly and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates that means we want to hear from you our listeners send us an email at tgowpodcast at gmail.com let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel how do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries what language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability we want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>